0: Hello, you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamir Rubek, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 82nd episode. Today, I'll start on a personal note. My friend Asim Latif does policy advocacy work for SDG 2. Now, you may wonder what that entails. Well, SDG 2 is number two on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Simply stated, it is zero hunger, end hunger, achieve food security, and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Well, easier said than done, as we have seen over the last year or so, that what was considered a topic largely confined to very poor countries, now is becoming a source of global concern, both from a short and long-term perspective. So I've been asking my friend Asma that, you know, who should I talk to if I want to get a global sweep of, of this issue? Somebody who's comfortable talking about the science as well as the politics and economics of food insecurity, and she suggested today's guest. So I'm very pleased to have with us Karen Smaller. She is the executive director of the Shamba Center for Food and Climate. Karen was co-director and co-author of Series 2030, a major initiative that we'll talk about in detail during the podcast. She is also the author of the Guide to Negotiating Investment Contracts for Farmland and Water, published by the International Institute for Sustainable Development, or IISD. And this guide sort of marks the first attempt at a model contract for developing countries to attract foreign investment for agriculture while reducing poverty and protecting the environment. And that's one issue that I want to pick Karen's brain, both the intersection or the intersection of climate change and food insecurity. Uh, Karen, in her past professional engagement, was the Director of Agriculture, Trade and Investment at IISD, as well as Director of the Trade Information Project at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP. Karen Smaller, welcome to COVID Time.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's uh, great to have you. I want to start with the very latest on your side. You are the executive director of the Shamba Center for Food and Climate. What is the center's mission objective and what is your role in it?
1: Thank you. So um, our vision at the Shamba Center is quite simple but ambitious. It's a world without hunger, achieved sustainably and through empowering poor producers, informal traders and small businesses. How do we do this? We do this by basically influencing those with power to do more and to do it better. So we try to convince world leaders, business leaders and philanthropists to act. And I'm actually one of three co-founders of the Shamba Center and as you as you articulated my role is as the executive director.
0: And when you say that you engage philanthropists and governments Um, so give us a few ideas of you know how you want to pursue this or I mean I'm sure you've done this in your previous jobs as well uh, but just give us a sense of you know how does an advocate uh, running a center like this engage on a day-to-day basis?
1: So we try and reach those with the most power which means we're trying to aim for ministers, politicians We're trying to aim for CEOs and we're telling them, this is what needs to happen to achieve world hunger and to do it sustainably. This is how you can do it. So I'm gonna maybe tell you a bit about it later, but we have a great initiative called the Zero Hunger Private Sector Pledge, where we ask companies to make financial commitments to end hunger. And we have a menu of 10 high impact areas that have been defined by science, through this CERES 2030 project that you mentioned at the introduction. And we ask them to make investments in those 10 areas that are backed by the scientific evidence. And in the 90 odd countries that we've identified are the highest priority countries to try and solve this issue of world hunger.
0: Great. So yeah, we will talk in great detail about the science that's sort of trying to come up with solutions as well as diagnosing the problem and the issue of costing. And I've seen some of your uh, YouTube presentations, so I'm really excited to talk about that. But first, Karen, uh, the here and the now. Uh, Let's talk about the state of food insecurity worldwide right now. How worried should we be about the rest of this year as well as 2023 with both respect to the price of food and availability of food?
1: so unfortunately we have to we should be worried we should be very worried so whilst you may have seen prices for wheat and corn easing off a bit in the last few weeks and this was definitely helped by the ukraine russia grain agreement that turkey and the un brokered so whilst definitely we see prices easing off compared to what we were seeing in march and april we're not out of the dark, we're not out of the woods. Um, This crisis is not just about grain prices and availability of grains, and it predates the war in Ukraine. This crisis, this food security crisis that we currently have is also about fertilizers, fertilizer prices and fertilizer availability. It's very much about energy prices and energy availability. And it's about access to finance. So all these things, food, fertilisers, energy and finance, are currently too expensive for poor countries and poor producers to afford. So that basically means that fertilisers are either not being applied on farms or are being applied sparingly. And that means that the next harvest, there's not going to be as much food produced as the last harvest. The high energy prices means that even where food is being produced, they're less likely to leave the farm because the farmer's not willing to pay the high energy prices and the traders, the informal traders and the SMEs who are transporting this produce to market can't afford to do it at the same price. Um, so this issue of transport means we're going to have food not leaving the farm or less food leaving the farm and less transport. This is going to mean higher chance for the food to be wasted or rotting or just not leaving at all. And then there's this finance crisis. Um, and, I mean, we obviously see it most starkly in the case of Sri Lanka with the debt crisis but it's not just about Sri Lanka and countries, it's about farmers being in debt, it's about countries being in debt, it's about debt levels all over the world out of control in so many low- and middle-income countries, and it's, it's this vicious circle that means we have to be really, really worried for now and into 2030. Just a small example, the farmers that are currently in debt, and we see a lot of those Ukrainian farmers who've been trying to get their grains shipped out of Ukraine, heavily indebted. If they can't get those grains out, either through land or through the Black Sea, they're not going to be able to plant next harvest, next season. And then this crisis is going to go through into 2023.
0: All right, that's a you know sobering set of thoughts, and I have a few follow-ups on that, Karen. So before we go into the uh, low and uh, low-income countries, I want to talk about at least one middle-income country, which is China, and the other is the other big chunk of population in the world, is India. So India, of course, plays a role in both exporting and, to some extent, importing uh, food material. China hugely reliant on the U.S. for soybean, and also, I guess. Latin America. So let's start with China and India. What's your sense of these two countries, both with respect to harvest and stockpile and and the outlook for 2022 and 2023?
1: So we don't have a great visibility on the Chinese stocks. It looks like China has quite good stocks. So there's a lot of calls to try and get more information about what China's stock levels are, because China's stocks look like they're pretty good, whereas global stocks are pretty low. So the the low stock levels is another sort of sign for me that we should be worried not just now, but in the future. So we seem to feel to to hear that there are quite good stock levels in China, but China's also pretty dependent on Ukraine and Russia for imports. So China's actually potentially one of the beneficiaries of this new Ukraine-Russia grain deal. But again, China can do more to help ease the global market crisis by releasing some of their stocks onto global markets and making those more available. India's not been the best ally of the poor world recently. You know, they put in place this ban on on grain exports, on wheat exports, Um, and this was really disruptive to markets and to those countries that were, you know, depending on India not banning their exports, but allowing exports to come out so that India could then re- replace some of the Ukrainian um, and Russian um, grain exports. But India put in place these export bans that was really very badly received by the world. I think India's now agreed to lift them. Um, but again, India and China are also going to be struggling with not just the food prices, but again, this sort of multiple crisis of fertilizer, energy, finance. So on the energy front, everybody's suffering. Um, On the fertilizer front, everybody's suffering. Uh, And on the finance side, there's also, you know, huge problems.
0: No, indeed, uh, you know, with the secular rise in interest rates around the world, your your point on financing, you know, really resonates. And we think of food in terms of harvest and distribution, uh, perhaps don't pay enough attention to this uh, financial angle, which, of course, is closer to our heart in the banking sector. And you sort of, you know, starkly pointed out the, the linkages and the risks that come with it. Now, Karen, uh, you said that, you know, uh, India's, you know, sort of ad hoc decision to restrict uh, exports of uh, grain uh, met with criticism. And there's been some back and forth and some easing here and there. And perhaps China is also on the table in some global fora around this. Now. Two and a half years ago, WHO found itself in a very difficult position around the pandemic where people were questioning its effectiveness of leadership, whether it was biased here or there and that kind of stuff. Does the WFB uh, stand on sounder grounds? Is it bringing together all the key actors of the world in this critical time?
1: So we actually just had a great um, victory for the World Food Programme recently, in, of all unlikely places, the World Trade Organization, the WTO. So up until a few weeks ago, countries like India would have been able to ban exports even for the World Food Programme. And luckily, all countries, including India and China, voted to agree on what they called the WFP waiver, which meant that Basically, countries agreed at the World Trade Organization to not allow export bans or export restrictions on foodstuffs that was being purchased by the WFP for its operations. So the WFP is actually in a great situation now in terms of countries agreeing that they will not do anything to restrict WFP's ability to do its jobs, to source food and to get it to the people who need it. Where the WFP is struggling is the numbers of hungry people are so out of control that unless they get much more funding to finance their food distribution or cash distribution programs, they're not going to be able to actually get to all the hungry people. And you have this dreadful situation where they're having to choose one hungry person over another um, or basically target those who are on the verge of starvation and not get to the usual. Um, people that they're trying to help. So WFP's problem is less about sourcing the food and more about getting the money they need or the support they need to finance their food. But again, here, I think WFP is in an okay situation. You had a huge announcement by the Biden administration in this Ukraine bill that was adopted by Congress, where a huge chunk of that Ukraine bill was a few billion dollars allocated to emergency food assistance for the WFP. Um, You've seen Germany announce additional money, um, part of which will go for emergency food aid assistance, and a number of other countries.
0: Um, Karen, earlier you were saying that, uh, you know, this concern about food insecurity, even in the near term ones, did not begin with this uh, war in Ukraine. We actually saw food prices go up even last year and, and even before the pandemic. I mean, this was an issue. Otherwise, it would not be, you know, number two on UN sustainable goals. So I wanted to engage you about the sort of structural aspects of food insecurity. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I think there are UN documents which show that through the 70s and 80s, even in the 90s the worldwide you know hunger rate was going down and then over the last decade or so it's been going up again which i find very troubling given that the world is much more prosperous today than it was 10 or 20 years ago so why are we becoming gradually more food insecure and uh, you know walk us through the you know all these various structural drivers
1: So, indeed, um, as you rightly mentioned, this food insecurity situation predates both the COVID pandemic and the war in Ukraine. And as you said, I mean, we were seeing progress, including in the 90s. I mean, we sort of had three decades of great progress where we saw hunger levels declining up until about a level of 8% of the global population. But for the past, and I think it's less than a decade, I think it's only about five or six years, we suddenly see this rise in food insecurity again after after getting so close to wiping out hunger. Um, So five or six years, we've seen it increase. The pandemic was by far the biggest setback to global food security with more than 100 million people With an additional 100 million people going into hunger as a result of the pandemic, and now with Ukraine, a further, we don't know exactly how many, but 50 to 80 million more people again being pushed into hunger. Why is this happening? Um, So I think there are three main factors. The first is in the last five or six years, we have experienced more economic slowdowns. I mean, today we're talking about recessions as well, but many more economic slowdowns in the low and middle income countries for various reasons. In some cases, it's because of low commodity prices, low oil prices, low, low, low mineral prices. Um, In other cases, it's for other reasons, but we've seen these economic slowdowns and they always put a negative dent into food security. The second and the more, I think, more serious problem that's with us for the future are the climate shocks, droughts, floods, and cyclones. Climate change has now become one of the main drivers of food insecurity. And this is with us to stay, as we know. We are not going to meet the 1.5 degree target. Climate change will be a reality, is already a reality. It is just going to get worse. And so these shocks are going to continue. And, I mean, we've seen it already. You know, we're seeing it now, the droughts, the floods, undermining harvests. And then the third driver, which has always been a driver and always will be, and I think is probably the hardest one to eradicate in our lifetimes, is conflict whenever you see conflict, you see hunger rising. So for me, uh, there's these three factors that are really undermining food security. With the pandemic, the main problem was access, not availability. Access basically meaning there was a lot of food in the market, but people lost their incomes. So while those people sitting in the rich world got safety nets and got all support from their government. Those sitting in the poor world, their governments couldn't afford to help them. And so they lost their. with the lockdowns. They lost their jobs from one day to the next. No job, no income, no food. Um, that was really the shock of the COVID um, for so many people in low and middle income countries. With the Ukraine issue, as we've discussed, there's an availability issue, there's an access issue, there's these disruptions to grain markets with the ports being stopped, with countries putting in export bans, there's low global stocks, but there's also the fertiliser and the energy issue. So what do we need to do to fix this, to stop this horrible reversal of otherwise decades of progress? So I think immediately people need cash to basically get them over the crisis, to be able to be able to afford food, um, healthcare, et cetera. So I think we need a massive global social safety net program. I think the UN needs to oversee it, but I think we need a social safety net program on the scale we've never seen before. That's gonna be the key factor to help us get over this current crisis.
0: But but Karen, when you say a social safety net program only for the short term or you would like to see this for the long term too?
1: We need it for the short term. Getting it for the long term is much more political. And there we start getting into these discussions about minimum basic incomes, who's entitled to safety nets, how they should get them, and this becomes political. And we see in many countries, politicians now advocating for these basic minimum income. But I think this is a bigger discussion to have. What I'm talking about is short term to get us over the crisis, even though if we start getting into the discussion, I think there starts being a more and more persuasive argument in favour of a basic minimum income for everyone. If we accept that the new norm is shocks, And I think the new norm is shocks, whether they're climate shocks, pandemic shocks, conflict shocks. I think this is the new norm, at least for the coming decades. Um, Karen,
0: I just want to pivot this discussion for a second, just to go back to the point uh, that the level of global hunger sort of improved for a while, and then it exacerbated. And you've pointed out cogently a bunch of factors. I I wonder um, uh, what you think of this notion that even in terms of crop yield, uh, that with the green revolution in the 60s and 70s, and as developing countries adopted, you know, high-yielding fertilizer and so on, um, we we saw an improvement in agricultural productivity, and that's also sort of flattened out, which I find personally rather striking given, you know, so many high tech solutions out there these days from satellite imaging and smart irrigation and so on. Um, First of all, do you agree that, you know, we have sort of flattened out in terms of crop yield around the world? Or is it the case that we still have a lot of low hanging fruits in terms of improving agriculture technology around the world and improving our uh, food productivity?
1: So now we get controversial and we get to this link also with our environmental crisis that we currently have. So there's no doubt, I think everyone agrees, even the harshest critics of the Green Revolution agree that the Green Revolution is one of the major drivers in having eradicated hunger and poverty because of this improvements in yields and ability of farmers to go beyond subsistence and to start becoming commercial. It has created untold environmental problems, Not just climate change, but biodiversity loss, pollution. And we are paying for that today so that it's now come back to bite us. And now environmental problems are one of the main drivers of food insecurity and poverty. So we've got to deal with the consequences of that success. I would say it was not only about yield improvements and productivity gains and green revolutionary technology. I think there's a lot of other factors that were in play. A lot of countries like China succeeded not because they improved productivity in agriculture, but because they improved productivity productivity in non-agricultural sectors, manufacturing, services, infrastructure. China moved people out of agriculture as a way to develop. That's quite different to what you see some of the Latin American countries having achieved, where they really pushed agriculture as their engine of growth and their engine of economic development. Brazil, um, Argentina, Uruguay, all these countries, um, Costa Rica, you know, agriculture was the way that they got out of hunger and poverty. But it's not a uni- universal story. There's a lot of other countries that, you know, Vietnam, China pursued a different model that's been arguably more successful because they've now got very diversified economies. Technology has been a huge factor, but not just crop technologies, not just technologies that improved yields, technologies that improved access to energy or improved mobility or made it easier to apply machinery technology. All of these other factors have also played a role. And I do think that as we find solutions for our, for our current and future problems, we can no longer just rely on the old way we did things. Um, even those who are huge supporters of the Green Revolution um, realise that we can't keep doing it this way, that, as you said, we've reached, in some places, we've reached the limit of our yield potential. We haven't everywhere. There is still massive productivity gaps in agriculture in Africa. So there's still a huge yield gap to fill in African agriculture. But if we do it in the same way as we did it in Asia and Latin America, we will keep exacerbating these environmental problems that are undermining our ability to solve these problems for good.
0: Um, Karen, I want to go back to the earlier point you were talking about this notion of a short term global food safety net. Now, uh, there are trust funds and financing facilities in the multilateral world out there. So for example, the IMF has this resilience and sustainability trust fund, I believe Bangladesh has reached out to the IMF to seek a tranche from that um, as part of, you know, sort of building up buffers against, you know, future shocks, not necessarily related to food insecurity, but balance of payments. Now. I mean, I, I want to sort of, you know, segue into serious uh, 2030 in, 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 a, in a sort of, you know, cumbersome manner, um, because these sort of issues that, you know, how to fund uh, gaps in food security in the short term, as well as set a basis for the longer term, requires serious analysis, serious costing exercise, things that are very credible to, as you were saying earlier, not just uh, minister's that you engage with but also extremely wealthy philanthropists who want to see convincing science based numbers so who's running these exercises what are the you know costing estimates for the near and medium term so walk us through series 2030
1: thank you so series 2030 was this three year research effort we were we were almost 90 researchers from 23 different countries and 53 different research organizations. Um, We were financed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the German government. So that gets back to our trying to convince the most powerful. So it was a study commissioned by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the German government to try and answer this question. How much is it gonna cost um, to end hunger and what are the most effective ways of doing it? And we really used that SDG2 framework as our framework for defining what are our targets and indicators. You mentioned it in the the introduction today. So what we did was we reviewed half a million articles from the past 20 years of agricultural development literature. And then we used a, a global economic model to estimate how it would cost. So what the literature told us were what were the most effective ways to end hunger and what the model told us was how much it was going to cost. And we were all very surprised with the results because what we found was that it really is possible to end world hunger and it's possible to do it by 2030 and it's possible to do it in a sustainable way. So what we found is basically that the price tag is an extra $33 billion per year until 2030, and that with that what we could do was end hunger, we could double the incomes and the productivity of about half a billion poor producers, and we could do it in a way that maintained greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture to the commitments that countries made in the Paris Climate Agreement. So, we have a hunger target, a producer productivity target, and we have a climate target. And of this sort of total package of an additional 33 billion a year, 19 out of the 33 billion has to come from the countries themselves, the low and middle income countries themselves, through their own public resource mobilization so that only 14 out of the 33 billion a year has to come from outside help, from donors, from philanthropists, et cetera. And this is in many ways why we founded the Shamba Center for Food and Climate, because once we saw this evidence-based report come out, and we were convinced that it was so possible to end hunger, we decided, okay, we need to establish an organization with a vision to end world hunger sustainably and to do it by empowering those producers and those businesses that are the sort of key to unleashing that, um, that goal. So in Sarah's 2030, just coming back, um, and then I will hand over back to you for other questions. So we basically found that 90 countries need to be prioritized for this investment. And that there's 10 high-impact areas where we need more investment. So we have these 10 high-impact areas, and we group them into three big buckets, if you like. So the first bucket, and probably the most important, is all the on-farm investments. And these are investments like investments in research and development, in technology, in mechanization, in assets that basically help farmers to improve their productivity and their incomes. The second is investments to move food from the farm to the market. And it's basically things that improve storages, improve business services that farmers need. And the third is this bucket called empowering the excluded. And this is all our social safety nets, but it's also our education and vocational training. Um, And it's basically the things that allow people to be at a level needed so that they can benefit from everything else. So it's making sure that you have an education, a decent livelihood and a political voice so that when all this other help comes, technology, inputs, R&D, business services, that you can benefit from it.
0: All right, lots of follow-up questions. (laughs) So firstly, uh, the 90 countries that you're talking about, are the majority of them in Africa?
1: Yes, and the highest. So of our 90, we have low priority, medium priority, and high priority. By far, most of the higher priority countries are in Africa, and most of the priority countries are in Africa. But there are pockets in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and in Central America
0: including central america okay which is sandwiched between two very large food producing regions of the world north america and south america yeah it's ironic um, second question is uh, you know you earlier talked about you know us philanthropists being very engaged particularly the gates foundation and we also talked about how the latest bill coming out of the us congress will also channel you know critical resources toward uh, this issue but uh, what about european union what about the rest of asia what kind of leadership are we seeing both in terms of commitment, commitment to finance at the public and private sector level, as well as actual action?
1: I mean, I think probably where where Asia is going to be contributing the most is in all the infrastructure development. I mean, China leading the One Belt um, initiative, a huge infrastructure project, China financing a lot of the infrastructure development in Africa today and in South Asia. Um, I think China is going to be hugely important in the infrastructure. The way China provides its aid, though, can sometimes make countries more vulnerable. And we've seen this with a lot of these very attractive loans for infrastructure development. And then when the country can't pay it back, the Chinese government or the Chinese state-owned enterprise that is responsible for it takes over these assets. And we see a number of ports, roads and bridges where the country's been unable to repay the loan back, where China's gone in and taken over or the the state-owned enterprises has gone and taken over these assets. Now, I think China could do more to make the countries that they're providing these loans to not as vulnerable um, to going into debt and being unable to repay those loans. But I think China, the Asia Development Bank, the the new um, Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank are going to be a huge source of additional investment um, in the coming decades. Um, the, European Union's, the European Union and the European member states definitely have stepped up. We've seen France and Germany in particular add more resources. We've seen the European Commission add more resources. There is a lot of attention right now on Ukraine because it is the biggest threat to the European Union since World War II. Um, And so they are quite focused there, but there is additional money being made available. But we have, I mean, you have to acknowledge that we have seen leadership from the US in terms of additional support and additional resources, not just for Ukraine, but also globally, um, that we hadn't seen under the previous administration.
0: Right. Uh, that is certainly a major departure. Uh, I want to talk a bit about Asia. Uh, so you, again, talked about private capital, uh, uh, you know, being channeled out of the U.S. Now, huge amount of wealth has been created in Asia in recent years. We have some of the richest men in the world, and they're mostly men uh, in, in China and India. Uh, what kind of uh, philanthropic capital are we seeing devoted toward this issue out of Asia?
1: So, uh, this is not something that i follow quite a lot so i think i probably wouldn't be able to answer you i mean certainly at a global level we're not seeing asian philanthropists stepping up but but i do i mean i do hear i do hear a lot about asian philanthropy in asia but again i think i'm probably not the best person to answer this question
0: you're being very diplomatic. I think there isn't a lot. I mean, if there was some chunky stuff, I think we would have seen in the news, uh, Karen, I think there's more work to be done there. And perhaps uh, you can, you know, lead that way in, uh, you know, encouraging, cajoling the the, the wealthy of Asia. Um, Karen, the issue about global policy coordination. So is the WFP, and as you said earlier, that, you know, with the EGs of WTO, that's where the coordination is taking place, not at the Washington, D.C. think tanks like the World Bank, IMF, uh, they're sort of supporting uh, as opposed to taking the lead?
1: So the um, the main, and I think rightly so, the main group coordinating this effort is the UN's crisis group on, they call it the U.S. crisis group on food, finance, and... Can't remember the third. <laughs> but oh, food, energy, and finance. Gotcha. Food, it energy, sounds, and finance. Yes. Yeah. So there's so the UN's the main body coordinating this global response. But we've seen a multitude of other initiatives emerge, right? So we've seen an initiative sort of supporting this UN coordination mechanism um, from the G7 and the World Bank. Uh, with this global alliance for food security that was announced at the World Bank spring meetings last year, Um, and then followed by this big conference called uh, Uniting for Global Food Security, which was a gathering of foreign ministers, finance ministers, um, agriculture ministers and environment ministers to try and unite, again, led by the G7 And then for me, the best news was the G7 summit that took place in Germany this year, where the G7 leaders announced an additional $4.5 billion this year to help respond to the global food security crisis. So I think there's been quite good leadership coming out of the G7. There's also been important leadership coming out of the G20 with the Indonesian government currently holding the the presidency. And there there was a major finance ministers meeting a few weeks ago um, on food security. I mean, seeing finance ministers gathering to address the global food security crisis is unheard of. Um, It just shows you how important this issue is and how important governments at all levels are taking this, the leadership, the finance ministries. Um, So we're seeing that. We we saw the the, the European Commission currently led by the French government launching a farm initiative, a food and agriculture resilience mission initiative um, where they've pledged additional money and we've seen the Italian government taking the lead in setting up a Mediterranean initiative. So, so everywhere a bit we're seeing initiatives emerging. I would say the main, the leading coordinating body is the UN, but there are these sort of other groups that are emerging to help accelerate that progress or work on specific areas or issues of need.
0: Okay. You know, we, we started this conversation in with a rather dour and sobering Reality. I'm, I'm glad that you're injecting a much needed dose of optimism and constructive, uh, you know, uh, observations. Karen, uh, here in Singapore, uh, we have this, uh, government, uh, orchestrated 2030 goal, 30 by 30, that 30% of Singapore's uh, basic food uh, would be grown in the urban vertical farming infrastructure of Singapore. Um, so we, we talk a lot about farms, which is by definition, not urban. Uh, and we talk about farmers, uh, which I think, you know, largely speaking, we talk about rural farmers. Uh, What's your sense of what's happening in this new, exciting field of urban farming?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I've actually looked a little bit at what's going on in Singapore, and I think this is the future. I think given the current reality, I think our future food supplies are going to be grown in vertical farms. And as we see, like Singapore is taking the lead because there is no farmland in Singapore, is taking the lead in developing the technology. It is currently way too energy intensive to really be a sustainable alternative to the current model. It uses far too much energy to produce the food. But if and when we solve the energy problem and Mm. we can source these vertical farms with renewable energy, Truly sustainable energy. I think they are a very viable alternative to our currently highly polluting, high emissions-intensive, highly uh, like unsecure because of the climate shocks model of agriculture that we're currently engaged in. So I definitely think this vertical farming is one of the is one of the areas we should be looking into. It's never going to be the only way we can grow food. And so whilst we pursue these vertical farms, we also need to pursue a whole lot of other ways of producing in a more environmentally friendly way. And I think one of the easy, two really easy things we can do. One is being much more efficient and effective at applying the inputs we apply. Let's be much more precise about where we apply fertilizer and where we apply pesticide and let's apply it where it's needed rather than just across a whole farm or across thousands of hectares. So everything that's happening in precision agriculture, let's be more efficient at how we use water. Let's stop using flood irrigation and rotational irrigation and let's massively input like drip irrigation Um, So being much more efficient at how we use the inputs we need for producing food. And the second big thing, which is an easy victory to have, is dealing with the waste. The waste at the farm level, the waste at the storage level, and the waste at the consumer level. It's not just about the waste we do in our fridges where we throw out half our fridge because the food you know, went got expired. It's about all the waste that's happening along the value chain, where we're losing a huge percentage. We don't exactly know how much. We think it's somewhere between a quarter and a third, but where we're wasting huge amounts of food because we don't have proper storage facilities, cold storage facilities, proper, um, um, yeah.
0: Okay, I want to assure all the listeners that this was not a planted question. Karen, the reason I say it is because food waste-related work is very close to DBS's heart, and we have launched a lot of campaigns about it. So people might think that, you know, I told you to talk about this, but this was completely unsolicited. This is totally from our own brain. Um, Karen...
1: uh, It's great to hear that, because seriously, this is our lowest hanging fruit. Indeed,
0: absolutely. And, then you know, it's so visible, so visible, the, the waste part. Um, So, uh, Karen, uh, this has been very illuminating. I really thank you for this. I want to sort of conclude the conversation with you sort of flagging the biggest risk and perhaps on the positive side, you know, biggest opportunity for the remainder of the decade. Like when you did your series 2030, we still didn't have this cloud of the war over us. Have those estimates become more challenging? Uh, Are you actually more... Hopeful because the crisis has galvanized, like you said, the finance ministers, which was not necessarily the case in the past. So, where do we stand in this juncture of things looking a bit dodgy, but at the same time, we are hearing the clarion call of action?
1: So, I think my risk and my opportunity are very linked. The risk is people feeling like there's nothing they can do about this problem, that it's too big. Ending world hunger is a whole of society effort. We're not going to achieve it unless the whole of society acts. And so, for me, the opportunity is for everybody to do their bit. And you know, I mentioned in the beginning this Zero Hunger Private Sector Pledge, which for me is one of one of one of the most Im- innovative mechanisms we have for everybody to act. Any company, no matter how big or how small, can make a financial commitment to invest in one of these 10 areas that was identified through the science of Sarah's 2030 and in one of the 90 priority countries to contribute to ending world hunger. So if you're a company or if you're part of the private sector, no matter how big or how small, we've had companies pledge $100. We've had companies pledge $160 million. This is not about charity. We're not asking for anybody to donate money. We're asking companies to say, we will invest in areas that will contribute to food security. And you don't even have to be a food business. You can be an airline. You can be a tech company. Do something that helps the food system get better at ending world hunger. So anybody who's listening, who's a part of a company, get your company to pledge. If you're a government provide more money to these 10 areas we've we've you know there's alongside the zero hunger private sector pledge there's a huge coalition that was launched called the zero hunger coalition that allows governments international organizations companies civil society farmers organizations all to act to make commitments and to act And I think that the risk is this not happening because people feel like the problem's too big or it's not theirs. And the opportunity is for everybody to get together and to make these very concrete, practical commitments to act to try and achieve this goal by 2030.
0: Well, we sort of, you know, not only just keep our fingers crossed, but to your point that, you know, action and, and practical uh, are, are absolutely key. Uh, Karen Smaller, thank you so much for your time and insights.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you today.
0: Pleasure. Uh, thanks to our listeners as well. Copy Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Splice Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. Time is for information only and does not present any trade recommendations. All 82 episodes of the podcast are available on YouTube, as well as on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.